0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming
1: community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast for Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. Today on episode number 97, I'm excited to talk about a variety of topics that span the breadth of academia, crowdfunding, online publishing, and the like. We are going to be talking about Kickstarter, we're going to be talking about museums and archives, and we're going to be doing all this discussion with Dr. Carly Kosturik, Associate Professor of Digital Humanities and Media Studies at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Hello, Carly. Hi. How are you today?
0: I'm great. How are you doing?
1: I'm wonderful, thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been following your Twitter, Sparkle Bliss, for years. I've been aware of your work with preservation, game design, the like, for more than six years. And it's just a delight to finally have you on the show and to have the opportunity to talk about just a small fraction of the multiple things you've done in game research and preservation.
0: Yeah, I'm glad we were were finally able to connect.
1: Yeah, me too. So let's talk specifically today about two things. The first we're going to talk about for the first half of the show is your Kickstarter that is currently running. It's the sequel to a previous Kickstarter you ran, both of which I have backed for a Zine called Save Point. For those who have not yet backed your Kickstarter, what is Save? Yeah,
0: so Save Points. Uh, it's a. It's just like a half page size uh, Zine I did that's. Um, game history but in a less formal setting than I usually do and it came out of a few different things one was I gave a talk in 2019 at MAGFest uh and I did kind of like an intro to how you do archival research in some ways right like here's all this weird stuff like what do you make of it what do you do with like a bag of chips right um the learning games initiative saves things like that which I always find bizarre and delightful and it got a really good reception. I was like, Oh, this is really fun. And there were people that said they wish they could have been there. And I was like, Oh, I could make this into something else. Uh, and that happened to match up with when I was in, uh, on sabbatical in North Carolina, at UNCW. And so I had time in a way that I, I usually don't to kind of like think about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do things. And I was, I was alone, right? Like I wasn't, um, my family stayed here in Chicago. So I was, I was, uh, I impulse bought like a sketchbook. So I was like drawing at night just like for fun and I was really having fun with it. And I was like, Oh, I could like, you know, use the drawings with something. And so I decided to put the zine together just to kind of like make things more available also to have something that's really portable and inexpensive and like, you know, that you can kind of like flip through and look at or not look at, you know, that kind of thing. And it was just really fun. I was just back at Magfest again uh, for the second time and the history section there really grew. I mean, there were, uh, the room that I, I spoke on, um, the room that I spoke in, I was on a panel with Rachel from FemiCom. Like, it was at capacity, right? It was like, and I was like, how many people sitting here? Like 80? And they're like, no, 175, which I know for people that do cons a lot, those aren't like huge numbers. But for people that normally do academic stuff, like that's so many people and everyone's really excited and really interested. And I, I think there's a real audience for, historical work about games. But again, like a lot of it happens in places that it's maybe not easy to find.
1: And why do you think that audience is growing? Why is there such a layperson interest in the preservation of games?
0: Well, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think some of it's just, you know, nostalgia, right? Like we remember things from when we were kids, we want to see them. Um, we're still relatively early in the history of Video games, right? Like we're not talking like hundreds of years. So we're not like going after ancient manuscripts. And I think games are an interesting area too, because they're actually in some ways, they're ultimately, you can't preserve them forever, right? Like they're they're, they're extending the life of these things as long as they can, but forever is not a possibility. And so one of the ways you preserve things then is by writing about them, by making sure that people understand what they are. The Learning Games Initiative Archive really believes in preservation through use. And that's been really influential to me to think about like, what does it mean to preserve things? Because the thing itself may not be the most important aspect of that historical artifact. So it really, it varies a lot. But anyway, I think his, you know, his history and nostalgia are like walk hand in hand, sometimes for better or worse. I, I think we're really seeing at the moment, like how important games are culturally um, and as an industry and understanding the history is I think really key for understanding that I, I think you know we're hitting a point where games have been normalized naturalized like people are are interested in the history of them the same ways that we're interested in like the history of literature or the history of film
1: when you say sometimes the thing itself may not be the most important thing to preserve could you give me an example of that
0: yeah so um the game death race which i've written about extensively uh 1976 game from Exidy. it's uh at the heart of kind of the first video gaming moral panic it's, it's not widely available. It's, it's quite rare. I think there's two cabinets, maybe three now that work in the U S and so most people can't access it. And you actually, that particular machine runs on very weird hardware. So you can find, uh, like adaptations of the game, but you actually can't emulate that particular hardware. Um, so if you play the game, not on the the machine, like you're not actually looking at the game and it also has, um, it has like a pedal interface and things like this that you're not going to get if I, if you're playing it on a computer. Right. But like that game's actually, it's fine. Like it's, it's a crash. It's like one of the first chase and crash games. It's, it's fine. It's not super sophisticated in any way um, by today's standards. And what's interesting about death race is not the game. What's interesting about death race is it starts a huge national controversy. Right. And so all the op-eds about Death Race are more interesting. The advertisements that are used to like promote Death Race are super interesting. The interviews with like their their uh, their VP who who is kind of trying to spin the narrative back and forth are super interesting. Um, the cabinet art's really interesting. But like the game itself, like the actual game as text is not. I mean, it's not uninteresting, but it's much less interesting than all those other things.
1: So how do you go about preserving the moral panic around the game in addition to preserving the game itself?
0: This is somewhere that even kind of standard resources like newspapers are very, very important. So newspapers are really, really useful for this, and tons of that is documented in newspapers. It also shows up in trade journals, which are are moderately well uh, collected. The Strong has really thorough collections of trade journals. Um, they're not complete, but they're they're pretty close to that. Uh, the Library of Congress actually has a lot of the trade journals, and I'm really fortunate because the Harold Washington Library Center here in Chicago um, has quite a few issues, actually, because Chicago is just so important for Coin Op. Um, so you can look for those kinds of things are really important. Something that I don't get into a ton, just because it's not it's not the methods I'm trained in, it is a uh, local tele- television. I think is probably an area that I would love to see more. Uh, research on related to these things because uh, I think a lot of the activism and and such you actually see there but you can also look at things like uh, legal precedent you can look at um proposed regulation schemes and things like that and those are all really well archived, really well preserved and documented Um so there's there's lots of ways to look at things and I, I think a lot of times like we get really into the thing like we're so excited about like the cabinet. Um, but maybe like the cabinet's actually like a part of a, a much bigger story.
1: You wrote about Exidy a little bit, and you, you wrote about Exidy and Death Race a little bit in your first issue of Save Point, which I'm holding right here. And I'm curious why you chose the format of the Zine to share these stories. You, you talked a little bit about the benefits of having it accessible and being able to carry it, but you also could have, for example, released a video of your MagFest talk or started a podcast where you interview people or just started a website like access to preservation.org why a zine
0: yeah so um there's actually there's a full journal article about that um and it's it's actually accessible it's at uh game studies it was one of the first articles i published and that's an open access journal you can go read it but it's like maybe six it's thousands of words it's quite long and i'm not saying don't read my work please read my work but you know i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't hand like that journal article to like a middle middle school student necessarily right um so that's like an audience thing the talk was recorded and it's available online also i'm someone i um i don't do really well with uh uh online audio so i'm i'm like not big on listening to things i do sometimes obviously but it's not like my own preferred form. So some of it's just that, right. It's like the kinds of things I like to look at and I like to consume. It's also just, you know, the, the, honestly, like drawing has been really fun and part of what I got out of sabbatical was just, you know, if it's, you don't have to be good at everything and you can kind of like do stuff because it's, it's interesting for you or, you know, whatever. Like I'm not an artist. I'm someone that like doodles in the margins of papers functionally and like really likes colored pencils and, and that's fine. Right. Like, so, so I, I just think it's like that. I, I want to do things in different ways. I want to do things people can do without like a ton of, um, expertise or overhead. And like, I'm fundraising for a save point because I want to print, print it in color. And it's really functionally at this point a pre-order. So I'm not like printing copies that nobody wants because, because they're not cheap. Right. So there's all those things. I'm, I'm not big on, um, I do a little bit of audio and video editing, but it's not really something that like I, I delight in. And I just, I delight in working with paper. I really, I like, um, I'm like one of those people that you could bribe with stickers as a child. I like keep a paper planner, you know? So, some of it's just like idiosyncratic, like personal um, preference and, and mode and, and things like that. Cause this is really a passion project for me. Like, I'm, I'm not like making money off of it. And if it's going to be a passion project, like, I want it to be a thing that's like, nice and fun for me to do
1: that would explain why the kickstarter is such a modest goal of only 500 you're essentially just paying for the printing and that's it right
0: yeah yeah so the initial um the initial kickstarter i did um fully funded the work on three issues because i do um i pay someone else to do some of the the image stuff because i'm i'm not good at photoshop and I hate it. Like I was like, does this just take forever? I think it just takes forever, and apparently, sort of, it just takes forever. But also, if you're like not me, you're better at it. My eyesight's not great, so I think that's probably part of it. And I'm impatient, um, so I pay someone to do that. I've also uh, paid someone to copy edit because I'm I'm real bad at that, <laughs> and it's it's really important to me that if someone's doing work on something, that they're paid fairly for that. So. You know, it's, the money goes mostly towards that. There, if there's anything left over, like I throw it back into other projects because, you know, that's what happens. But it's, uh, it's, it's good. I've gotten really good feedback on it and I think, I think it's exciting. I really love that people are teaching it in their classes. I really like being able to, you know, be able to make the PDFs free so that, you know, uh, if folks want to use it in class or or send it to their friends, they can. And I'm going to keep doing that at least for, you know, the first two issues, the PDF's free. Probably eventually I'll start having to be like, you know, (laughs) throw a dollar in or something. But I I haven't quite made that decision yet and I don't have to, so I'll put it off.
1: It's great that you already have the first three issues funded and that this Kickstarter, you can focus solely on the printing cost. That takes a lot of burden off of you. But you also are still nonetheless responsible for all the writing and the content because it's all a single author. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Um, Right now it's all me. I I don't know if I'll keep doing that. I might... You know, like I was thinking in issue three, I might at least like do some interviews or, or little things like that. But I don't know, like I, I I, kind of think about what I want to do. And I know um I was just at uh, at MAGFest, um, Frank Cifaldi and Kelsey Lewin from the, the Video Game History Foundation were talking about that they had been publishing articles on the website and then just realized like that was really managing authors and dealing with editorial processes when they're so so small and running like such a lean funding model right now. Um, it just wasn't realistic. So uh, in some ways, like having other people do writing and things is less work, but in other ways, it's it's more work, right? Because it adds a lot of coordination. Whereas right now, I can kind of be like, oh, I want to work on this for an hour. And it's like, oh, it's done now. You know, like I'm, I'm not having to like set up a lot of structure because it's really just it's me.
1: Sure. Wrangling other people can be a job unto itself when you're already responsible for the crowdfunding, the publication, et cetera. Yeah. One of the things I loved about the first issue of Save Point that I got is just how accessible it is. And you talked about how you have also written thousands of words that you would not give to a middle schooler. How do you navigate that context switching of writing for a different audience? Because this stuff isn't always accessible.
0: I think a lot of it I something I really benefited from a lot professionally, like as a person is I worked at the college newspaper. Right. And so writing that style uh, has always been really satisfying. I still write op-eds and things like that. Sometimes I re I really love doing that. And I actually uh, wish I got to do more of it. Um, so some of it's that, you know, I actually, I have like a, a I don't even, I have a, a something installed on my WordPress that actually helps me check like reading level and things. So when I'm blogging, a lot of times I'll check, um, that, and I, you know, I'll kind of adjust. Like, I was writing a post about, uh, graduate school. Like, if you wanted to come study games with me, like, here's what our graduate programs look like. And, you know, the, the reading level was fairly high. And I was like, well, that's okay. Cause like, I figure on average, the audience for like, do you want to come study at graduate school? Like probably is used to reading some dense stuff. Um, but then it was like, you know, a lot of this is in passive voice and I'm like, oh, well that's no good. And so I went back through and, you know, switched stuff to active voice where I could, it's been really nice. Like it's made me a lot more conscious about my writing and the kinds of writing choices I make.
1: No, I think that's great because I've tried reading other works about video games from an academic perspective, such as from the MIT press. And I don't find that I'm exactly their target audience. The The work is fascinating and I love games, but it's written for a different audience. And it's written about aspects of games that I don't have the background to understand or appreciate. And that's very different from The work of yours that I've been exposed to, which I can pick up and say, oh, I know what she's talking about. I know what she's getting at.
0: Yeah. And some of that's just disciplinary, right? Like, so I I come out of a cultural studies, American studies um, type background, which is a a field that has like a really long history of of studying pop culture and of being um, a field that you get a lot of public historians and public thinkers from. I think some work ends up more dense just because it's actually like that's normal in that field. Right. And so for example, if I was writing in philosophy, I'd probably write in a much more kind of like precise technical way. And my, my sentences would be longer and things like that. And in some ways, like I'm, I'm less formal in my writing than most academics are. And there's tons of reasons for that. And most of them really just have to do with who I am and they put me in, it, it puts me in opposition to the copy editor sometimes, but I, I don't think there's necessarily a better or worse. I think there's like a better or worse for the specific context in which you're writing. Game studies is such a huge field that you get people doing very, very, very technical things, and and some some of which like I really don't understand. And then you have people doing like really thought, you know, like kind of like thought provoking, playful things. And then you have people, you know, doing really practical things. So and people doing like very, very theoretical things. Um, and so it, it just depends, right? Like it's it ends up being all over the place. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, in some ways, I think that's fun, right? Like, there's always more to dig into.
1: So with all those different kinds of things that people can write about and the different ways that they can approach them, how would you classify yourself or your discipline? What sort of preservation or writing would you say you focus on?
0: I mean, I I, I really think of myself as a cultural historian. So I'm I'm interested in history, but really in history is kind of like daily life, Right. And, you know, I I was trained by someone that does food studies and and, uh, another person that studies like drug policy and someone that studies circuses and animals. I think she just wrote a book about Jaws. So I I don't come out of like a a games background. I come out of a cultural history background um, and pop culture background. So I think it's just a different way of approaching things.
1: Would you say that games is the minority of what you focus on compared to all the other media you just mentioned?
0: No, I'm I'm definitely like I definitely do my research on games, but like the training I got was really in how to how to study and analyze US culture um and US history. Um whereas I know some folks come out of and even even people I train now, right? Like the grad students that work with me, like they're really they're focused as game scholars and like, you know, odds of them working in games programs or or things like that are much higher. So it's it's interesting, right? Like You kind of end up with weird generational shifts that happen in,
1: in academic lineages. Well, I know when I was in school, and this is something I've talked about on Polygamer before, there were no studies in game design, interactive media, etc. And there definitely wasn't any studies about the preservation and history and study of those media. So I, it's definitely generational that people are now being given opportunities to examine and participate in this... Um, You know, quote unquote, emerging medium in ways that you and I. Probably never had access to.
0: Yeah, well, and I think I was really lucky because I was I was in a cultural history program, and it's like, yeah, of course your advisor works on something totally different because the thing you're learning is is how to do this type of research, not necessarily on this type of thing. Um, whereas I think in some fields that's a little different, right? So if I was if I had ended up in a literature department, which I could have, right, like that might have been a thing that happened. I think there's a little more emphasis on like, of course you do narrative and textual analysis because like that's the thing you're learning how to do, um, and I think you get a little. More there into arguments about like what kinds of things are in legitimate sources or legitimate objects of analysis. in In American studies, it's long been really, really wide. So a lot of a lot of studies of of what gets called ephemera, a lot of studies of like popular culture, including like distasteful popular culture, right? So like um, people doing books on on blackface and kind of like um, you know other things that were now just like oh my gosh, why was it like that? And and so it I think there was a little less I didn't run into the kinds of pushback I think you do in some fields for studying like a bad object.
1: Speaking of objects, the first issue of Save Point the focus was video game history through objects. I understand the upcoming second issue is going to focus on color. What does that mean in this context?
0: So I go kind of- like I kind of was using it as an abstract uh, jumping off point to kind of think about color like if I was going to think about color in the history of games and I think color is really interesting in in the context of video games because it's a it's a technology right and so you end up with very different color palettes over time and one of the one of the things I look at in the in the issue is actually the changes in Oregon Trail that Oregon Trail goes from like the, you know, the duo duochro- or the monochrome duochrome, like black and green or black and white, depending on the display you're playing on. Um, and then it gets brighter because, you know, they have like 16 bit color, they can do more things. But then actually, when they get a much more sophisticated display technology, it gets darker again, um, because they start making it, quote unquote, realistic, right? And so it's not these like really vivid, saturated colors, and that one, I think, is particularly interesting because it, 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 uh, matches up with a point when they do Oregon Trail 2, that there's an effort to make the game more historically accurate, um, and to really, uh, diversify who's shown on screen, right? So you see more women, you see more, more American Indians, you see more Black people, um, and it's, it's, uh, it's this moment of like the game becoming like more real. Um, and it means it's actually more muted, but like that muted or realistic look actually takes a lot more technical ability than the really vibrant, right. Um, previous generation. And, and I think there's a lot about kind of like the way an era looks, right. Like there was just a bunch of, uh, of kind of like kerfuffle over, uh, GoDaddy changing its logo and that we've all kind of veered towards minimalism um and so like i think about color that way like it's kind of like an earmark of the era right like everyone knows about the pantone color of the year and that's that's something i think we really see but you also have just kind of like colors that are suddenly everywhere like you know millennial pink which is i think fading out but i'm sad because i love it so you have things like that you have like color in ways that like Um, it works in film when you do film analysis and you say like what's the color palette of this film and for example uh, noir films tend to look very uh, they're blues and grays and teals and things like that Um, which you can see if you look at Blade Runner which is very noir inspired it has that a similar color palette but then also like the Nancy Drew games like Secrets Can Kill the first one if you look at that box it's all teals and blacks and grays right so um, there's ways that color conveys genre and conveys tone conveys audience Um, there's ways Color works as a technology. There's ways that c- color can make things accessible or inaccessible. Um, so, if we think about uh, people who are colorblind, which is actually a fairly significant part of the population, uh, many, many games. Um, are, are quite hard to play without that, with, without, uh, full color perception, right? Cause like red, green color blindness is the most common, but like, what do we constantly use to just like convey important information in games like red and green? So it's, it's just, uh, I think there's a lot of ways to think about it, and a lot of what I'm doing here, I think, is just like poking and being like, "What if you did this?" Um, I keep a running list when I'm in the archive of like journal articles someone could write, and like I'll probably never write them, but I just it lets me get out these ideas where I'm like, "Whoa, look at this thing!" and and I think some of the some of this issue is that kind of stuff. It's like, "What about this?" Um, and just you know, I I uh, I don't know. Like I I hope someone takes it and it lets them play with something they're interested in in a new way.
1: One of the things I love about how you just described color and how you're going to be writing about it in Save point is that at least for me it's not an obvious topic. like if somebody asked me what would you like to read about in the next issue of Save Point, what you just described would never occur to me, and that is something that is going to be a new lens through which to look at games once I get my hands on your next issue
0: yeah, I mean I think I think I love that the history of video games um is so kind of like cross-professional and cross-disciplinary. So we have people that are really passionate that are, um, you know, basically doing academic work, but they aren't academics. We have people doing, you know, kind of advocacy and, and outreach work. We have all kinds of, we have people from industry very invested. And I think everyone has different kinds of perspectives and ways they're trained. And I think for me, this is like a fun way to kind of share and um, give, give a little bit of context for the way I was trained.
1: Now since preservation is such an important aspect of your work will extra copies of save point be printed to be donated to places like the strong museum of play
0: yeah so i don't know if the strong wants it if they want it <laughs> they of course get one they get everything they can have everything they want um i actually they there i i consult with them some and they're uh they're the part of my preservation plan for the grant project i'm on right now uh, we also actually have an archive uh, here on my campus and the, the campus archive was really um, excited to get some. So I'm, I'm going to do that too. So they'll, they'll be in a few places to make sure that there's hard copies and hopefully electronic copies preserved long-term.
1: If somebody wants to read the PDF of Save Point issue number one and upcoming number two, where do they find that online?
0: Yeah. So it's not up yet because I I was um, <laughs> I was trying to decide what the best thing to do was. I'm, I'm definitely going to put it in the archive here. I'm also probably going to put it up on something like Gumroad, um, but that should be up in the next week or
1: so. Excellent. And if people want to back the Kickstarter that is currently running through February sixteenth, how do they find that?
0: Yeah. So if you if you Google like Save Point Two Print Run, um, that should show up on Kickstarter. At worst case, you'll find the old one. Um, but you can also always just find me. I'm really easy to find, especially on Twitter. So yeah, most stuff shows up on Google. If it doesn't, drop me a line.
1: Awesome. I don't think you'll have any issues meeting your goal. At the time of this recording, you are $434 toward your $500 goal. And this podcast is going to air a few days after you and I chat. I imagine it will have hit its goal by then.
0: I hope so. And I'm really glad people are excited. And, you know, print is... uh... Part of why I'm running it this way is I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not a store, right? And so trying to deal with like ongoing shipping and things is, is just not realistic for me. But having something where functionally it's a pre-order and so I can sit down for one night and like get them all shipped, uh, works really well. And so it's kind of like the happy medium between, um, you know, me just being like, here, print your own and people really wanting kind of like that experience of getting in the mail.
1: Yeah, and it's such a quick turnaround, too. They back it, the Kickstarter ends February 16th, and you're promising to ship it March, which is just a month later, so...
0: Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, all I've got left uh, right now on the issue is uh, the copy editing is in process, and then I have a couple images that need to be cleaned up, so...
1: Excellent. You mentioned that the Strong gets a lot of your work and you also mentioned that they are a great place to do research, which you are doing a lot of for a grant that you recently got. Let's shift to context again to talk about this other big project that you've been working on. You recently got a grant for studying Girls for Games Informing the Future is the name of the grant. can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
0: Yeah, so like you know, like I said I'm I'm a historian. This is uh this would be my third uh book kind of academic book. And it's a book project looking at the history of the games for girls movement and in particular, kind of like the successes and failures there. One of the things I've been really interested in is that we we- we the United States are like we the people right like um and many companies we're we're dumping like millions of dollars into kind of diversity and stem uh initiatives and Some of these are really effective. Some of them are ineffective. There's lots of weird things where we talk about this in a way that actually doesn't align with what we know. Um, So for example, people talk about the pipeline problem and and there's this assumption that that happens in middle school. That's not actually in in most uh, fields. The pipeline problem actually happens when people are in their mid-20s. So it's not a getting people in the door problem. It's a retention problem which I think is really interesting. The Gamester Girls movement is this really fraught effort, right? So it's this, this uh, Henry Jenkins and Justine Cassell in, in, uh, from Barbie and World Kombat call it the unstable, uh, an unstable alliance, right? Or an unstable coalition. And I think about that all the time uh, because you have the industry that wants to sell more games. You have individuals within the industry that are really excited about the opportunity to kind of diversify what they're making or to make the kinds of games they want to play. Uh, you have, parents that want like you know better opportunities for their girls you have kind of like activists that are interested in getting women into tech and they see this as a way to do that so there's all these different uh reasons people are invested in this and and there's points where they align but there's points where they really diverge right and so there's this brief moment of attention and then there's like all kinds of breakdowns right and so this really only lasts a few years as kind of like a visible coherent effort and I think the Games for Girls movement is really interesting for that, for being kind of like contained in some ways. Uh, cause it gives you this like, you know, what we might think of as like a historical moment, right? Of like five, six years. You kind of watch the rise and fall of something and figure out like, why does it why does it fall, right? And and then like, what are the goals it had? How effective is it in meeting those goals? What can we learn from the ways it did or did not meet those goals? And, you know, I think all of that's so interesting. And I'm hopeful that especially as we're talking about the industry and kind of the workforce of the industry and how the industry responds to um, different kinds of problems like and and problems, especially with diversity, right? Like there's been a couple of settlements recently having to do with uh, workforce problems. Um, those are all big issues and they're all things to take seriously. And I think rather than acting surprised every time these come up, maybe we should like think a little more carefully about the ways that we're just redoing things we did wrong, you know, 15, 20 years ago.
1: As somebody who's never applied for a grant before, can you tell me a little bit about not the process of applying, but once you get it, how does that work? Is this, does it enable you to do work that your day job would not enable you to do?
0: Yeah. So I'm in a, I'm in a really optimal position for the kind of work I do. So I'm, I'm an academic. And so I'm, I am uh, I have a research expectation as part of my job. Um, the grant lets me do a few things, right? So it's in line with the kind of work I've done historically, which is part of why they considered me qualified for the grant. But the kind of interviewing I do is actually quite expensive and involves a lot of travel. It's uh, labor intensive on transcription. And I really want to create a body of interviews Related to the games for girls movement, that is significant, um, and that really like provides some insight. And so, I won about twenty five interviews. By contrast, like for coin-operated Americans, I think I did like eight interviews. Um, And even doing those eight interviews, like you know, that cost quite a bit. So it's letting me do more work. Like it's letting me work at a scale that I normally can't. It's letting me work faster. So I'm able to, to really focus on this project in certain ways. I'm teaching less because I got a buyout from the grant and I have a research assistant. So like. You know, I, I met with I met with my research assistant yesterday, and they're great, and they're going to go, like, try and build out a list of all the people we need to try and contact. So there's things like that. It just makes it a lot faster. It's also... One thing I like to stress, it's, like, such a cool way to get to provide a professional experience for a graduate student. Um, so now there'll be a student that's gotten to do all this work with me, uh, which is really neat. It's letting me do more outreach than I normally do. So uh, I included in the grant things like speaking at MAGFest. Um, so... It's, it's really a different approach. It gives me time. It gives me money. It frees me up. It makes me more flexible. And that's just, you know, I'm someone doing like very humanities based work that is, is expensive because of the travel and because of the archival needs. It also covers some of the archival um, work I'm doing. Um, But, you know, it's it's great. Like for me, this is really great. There's also grants that I've consulted on and advised on um, that help with preservation projects. The strong actually just got a really significant grant from the national endowment for the humanities. That's going to help with their expansion. They've been working on other grant funded efforts to, you know, change and improve how they store their periodicals. So I, you know, grants are really vital um, for a lot of the kinds of work that we do. And they're part of how we set priorities. They're also, I don't know. I mean, for me, this is just super exciting and I I don't really come from a field where I'm trained to apply for these kinds of grants. Like part of me is like, yeah, I got a grant from the NSF and then like, and that's great. And of course I do good work and they should fund me. And then part of me is like, what, what, why, why would they give me money? Like it's, it's really (laughs) exciting and it's, it's, I'm thrilled. And I, I'm glad. I think it signals really that we're starting to see nationally, we're starting to kind of understand how important games are to our culture and to our economy. Um, and that this is, this is something we need to like take seriously and really understand.
1: I'm sure one of the reasons that they chose you to give this grant to is because you've already done such extensive research into this exact subject, including with your own book about Purple Moon and Brenda Laurel. So you've you've already done some of that research. What additional directions are you going to go? You talked a little bit about that, but I'm curious to know like what research have you already done and what research do you want to build on next?
0: Yeah, so one of the first things I did for this project this this specific project actually is uh, I went to the strong and I went through like eighty thousand pages of magazines. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. Like, I I tried to calculate it when I was there, and I think it was about 80,000 pages. And and that doesn't mean I sit and read every page, right? It's me going through very, very, very quickly. Um, But, uh, you know, part of it's looking more at popular press sources than I I had for the Brenda Laurel book and looking more broadly. So I'm looking at the games that... um, Teresa Duncan worked on that Monica you worked on. I'm looking at the her interactive games. Um, I'm looking at how magazines are talking about those games or not talking about them more often. I, I interviewed Brenda, uh, Laurel for the book about her, which was great. She's an extremely interesting person. Um, but that's one interview and that's one company and it's really one perspective of that company, right? Like she's the founder. She's VP of design. Um, and so part of what I'm trying to do with this is get more kind of like, diverse perspectives, not just about Purple Moon or even from Purple Moon, but looking at her interactive, looking at, um, you know, girl games, looking at hopefully some of the folks that worked on, on games at places like Hasbro and Mattel that really tried to get um, into this market or even in the case of Mattel kind of take over this market. And so, you know, again, just I think really expanding the the kind of cluster there and thinking about this as a historical moment, as a historical movement, and, to, and taking it seriously right like I, I think it's important to do this now because this isn't there's types of things that are taken very seriously as they're happening and they end up very well documented that's not always the case with games um, and it's certainly not always the case with games um for an undervalued audience right
1: Just be sure we're on the same page the games for girls movement in the 90s and purple moon I was not playing those games at that point I was playing you know, super Nintendo and playstation so I may have missed out on some were these games like, featuring Barbie and the like, or was there more to it than that?
0: There's tons. So there is, there is kind of like, um, one of the, the early, you know, hit, hit hits is a uh, Barbie fashion designer in 1995. And there's lots of argument about whether or not that's a game. I actually don't find whether or not it's a game or like a terribly interesting question. Um, what's interesting and important there is that thing sold 500,000 copies, right? That's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good, right? And it, it's so smart. And it's it really kicks off this like, oh, you can make things for computers that girls will like. But it's also like, it's cool. Like, I remember the ads for that when I was a kid. Like, we never got it because I didn't have a printer, which is very sad. Because uh, you could like design the clothes and then print them, and they were like real doll clothes. Like, that's awesome. I would still like that. It's neat. Like, this is like maker movement stuff, right? <laughs> um, but so that comes out the same year uh, Chop Suey comes out, which is uh, Monica Gessu and, and Teresa Duncan's game, and it's beautiful, right? Like in, and Rhizome now has uh, reissued those online, so you can go play them. And it, it's like this beautiful, weird game. Like David Sedaris is the narrator, which always cracks me up. Like there's a lot about that game that's so fun and so cool. And in fact, uh, Entertainment Weekly names it like CD-ROM of the Year, right? But I always tell this very sad story about that, which is it's, it's CD ROM of the year. It's selling quite well. And it's then, but then like a year later, you actually can't purchase it. It just like goes out of distribution. So you get lots of different kinds of games even early on. Uh, Purple Moon starts releasing games in 96. I think her interactive's first title is, is shortly thereafter, a year or two after that. You, there's lots of other companies even doing just one off games that are intended for that demographic. Uh, so you get lots of different kinds of things and, they're not necessarily similar, right? Like Her Interactive releases like a, a Vampire Diaries game, which I'm like, they were so ahead of their time, right? Like they could have been the CW. There's So there's lots of different kinds of efforts to figure out what girls want. Some of them are very research-backed. Some of them aren't good, right? Like, and, and that's true of anything, but there's so few games made for girls that like, I think like one game being bad becomes then used to be dismissive. Um, but there's like terrible first-person shooters made all the time and nobody's ever just like, First-person shooters are terrible. Why does he make any of those, right? Like, that's not how we talk about them as kind of a genre, as a marketing category. Whereas with Games for Girls, like, you'll start to see that. And there's so much going on there. It's a really fascinating topic, and I think it it raises a lot of interesting questions about uh, how game culture has evolved.
1: It's true that games or even any media that feature or are aimed at specific demographics – carry the weight of the entire of representing the entire demographic. Like when the ghostbusters movie came out and nobody said, Oh, those, that movie isn't funny or that actor isn't funny. There were people who were saying women aren't funny and they would never say that about a unfunny movie starring men.
0: Right. And there's like so many unfunny movies starring men, right? (laughs) I've been subjected to many of them in my life. Um, yeah. And it's funny because like when you turn those things around, right? Like they always sound absurd. And it's like, it should, o- it should sound absurd no matter who we're saying that about, because, you know, people are di- diverse and strange and wonderful. Uh, but the games for girls movement, um, it- it's, it's, n- it's nice in some ways uh, to work on. Cause it's such a moment of optimism. Right. And I don't think all that optimism was misplaced. I think some of that optimism, you know, it's not necessarily uh born out, but I think I, th- I think a lot of interesting good things get made, and i you know i I really recommend like if you're gonna play any of the titles from this um chop Suey's delightful, you can play it on rhizome, but also the the secret paths games uh secret paths in the forest and secret paths um to the sea like that purple moon does are beautiful right, and they're really about storytelling and kind of like nurturing and growth and like i I don't know like they're a, uh, they take they take girls and their problems so seriously, um, and they treat them like whole people that deserve like respect and kindness and all these things. And I, I think that's so rare, even just in how we talk about children in general. Um, that I find something really profound and moving about that.
1: So now we are a quarter of a century later from ba- from Barbie fashion designer. Do we still have games being made for girls, and what do they look like?
0: Oh, totally! And we also have games being made for women, right? Like, um, because some of us grew grew up, I guess. Um, You'll still see you still see tons of licensed things. Like, they're not going to stop making Barbie games, Um, but you know, some of those are good, right? Like, uh, what's the is it Barbie Barbie Horse Adventure? Right? Like, a lot of um, apparently a lot of people in the industry like like go play Barbie Horse Adventure because they did such a good job on the horses, and I think. Again, like this is the thing that happens when you take your audience seriously. So, like little girls that are into horses know a lot about horses, right? Like they were going to know if that horse was no good, and and so there's things like that. There, we're also seeing more interactive um, things online, and so you see things like uh, now dated, but like things like Webkins, right, where we start thinking about like toys that have kind of like a web component and things like that, and especially plush toys like tend to oversell um, to girls. Webkins are weird. I love them. Uh, so, so you see things like that. Of course, you see the license things. Um, almost all, to- many, many, many toy brands have websites now. And so, like American Girl has a really robust web presence. They also they were they were releasing CD-ROMs uh, during this period, uh, but they still make games and things. And then you'll see um, branded content for adult women, right? So, like the Kim Kardashian game, which I assigned in my games history class on the first day. A student goes what? Why would you do that? And I kind of jokingly said, don't question my expertise, but I wasn't, I'm like, I assigned it for a reason, I promise, right? And like, some of these games are really great. Like, they're really good at what they're meant to be. And and I think the fact that, you know, it's unsurprising to me that a student like questions while we're, why we're playing that. But in fact, uh, that game was super interesting, right? And it's part of like this, this moment where like, celebrities, and especially celebrities that are kind of like pop stars, like, of course, they all have apps, of course, they all have games. But that's like a really different way of thinking about games as pop culture than we've had historically. And it's something that is really about marketing to women, or at least marketing heavily feminized products. So yeah, we absolutely still see uh, games for girls. Uh, They tend to look different. I think for better or worse, they tend to look different, right? And we're starting to see kind of like more games with with girls and women as protagonists. So like, I think their their player base is probably more different. Nancy Drew remains super um, popular, right? Like that's such a long running uh, franchise and series at this point. So we still see games for girls. And in, in some ways, like they kind of look the same, but they're not. Um, I And I'm glad we're seeing more like weird experimental stuff. I think Chop Suey and Zero Zero... Um, and the third game and am looking the name of, like, part of why those games are so interesting and so important is, like, they look really weird. They're really different. And I'm, I'm glad we're having a moment of kind of experimentation and kind of delight with experimentation in games because it's great to play weird things. You know, I finally had time to play We Know the Devil, right? And is that a games for girls title? No. Does it in some ways kind of feel like one? Yeah, a little bit, right? Like, and it's it's great. It's surreal and it's a little scary. It's great.
1: Awesome. I will include links to those games in the show notes, as well as a link to one of my very first episodes of this podcast where I interviewed Sherry Grainer-Ray about gender inclusive game design, where she makes the case that it's just good business sense to want to have to, to want to double your audience.
0: Right. There's a, when I interviewed Brenda Laurel, she talked about um, one of the people she was working with was like, you know, there's this multi-billion dollar industry and then there's an empty lot next door. It's like, Yeah. Go build on the empty lot, you know?
1: (laughs) Right. Such a missed opportunity. So this grant that you received, you received it last summer. It runs for two years through July 2021. What milestones have you set yourself between now and then?
0: Yeah. So my... I think more kind of like in numbers for these things because people, people are impressed by numbers, whether they're impressive numbers or not, but uh, it's all, it also means like, it's kind of how I think about it because it's benchmark. So my goal is to interview 25 people. Um, that's been a little bit of a rough start for reasons, um, but we are starting to get that rolling. I'm very excited about uh, those opportunities. Um, I've been in touch with some folks and, and looking forward to continuing those conversations. And some of that's of course, I strive to be like a respectful and thoughtful interviewer, but it also means that like I'm not always a known entity and sometimes people kind of want to take time and decide if they want to talk to me or like wait and see what happens when I interview other people. And that's that's fine. I completely respect that. Um so my goal is 25 interviews. Um I'm uh working on this issue of Save Point and it talks a little bit about some of the research I've been doing. I went to, back to the strong because I always go back to the strong, and did all that magazine research there. And I also went through the the papers they have from her interactive, which are very very interesting. Um, they have things like uh, notes from focus groups they did, and those are just really rich. Um, and then I've also just been, you know, spending time looking at and playing some of these games. Like some of them are are really interesting. And also, like really revisiting. There's tons of just uh, really tedious, like coding and uh, coding in the sociological sense, not in the uh, uh, computer science sense, uh, of making sure that the the images I have that I understand what's in them, that they can be used in the way that I need them to be useful. Because uh, when I'm in the archive, I just photograph pages, and so they end up with like a thousand photos of, of pages um, that then have to be dealt with when I get back here. So. Yeah, I don't know. I always, I always tell people like a lot of doing history is actually really tedious uh, work. Um, so I'm doing a lot of tedious work. I'm also doing a lot of exciting work though, with, with talking to people and things like that. Uh, the ultimate goal is a book. So a lot of my benchmarks are tied to to that writing process. And I'm, I'm hopeful I can start, uh, you know, have an outline and start talking to potential publishers in, in March, because I'm going to the Society for and Media Studies.
1: And that's one of my good publishing conferences. You said you want to interview 25 people as part of your research. How do you go about identifying and finding those people?
0: One of the things we're doing right now that I, I kind of love and is uh, I have my my research assistant. I'm like, just go through LinkedIn and see who has this list of any of these 10 companies in their bio. Because one of the problems I run into is I really want to interview people that worked in like different capacities on these things. And understandably, like the most findable people are always at executive levels. Um, but I want people at non-executive levels. So I think one thing that this project has some real potential to do is is look at kind of the development process in a a more broad way. And I think that's really exciting.
1: Fantastic. And when you say you're going to be outlining the book and maybe shopping around this coming March, does that mean that the book will be written by the end of the grant?
0: Uh, The ideal, yes. Ideally, the book should be written by the end of the grant or at least in a draft form. I think that's what I promised in the... Uh, in the application. So when I start shopping it, I'll probably have like the intro written. And then that outline uh, that kind of says what the chapters are do- will do. Um, and then I go back through and I finish the research and sometimes the arguments and the chapters get reshaped and things like that. Um, but yeah, the goal is to have a draft of the book by the end of the, the grant cycle. And again, like this is only possible because of that kind of support. Uh, I, d- I wrote a blog post recently about ways to support video game preservation and video game history if, if it's not your area. And, you know, it's the NEH, uh, got a funding increase, uh, recently. And it's like the largest funding increase they've had in a really long time. And that's amazing. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that's important is to remember that, like, these federal agencies, like the NIH, the NSF, like, um, that's a huge part of how any of us are able to do this work. And so, you know, when you start hearing about, like, oh, maybe the funding will get cut for this or that, like, please help us, right? Like, we need those, those resources protected because you can't do research at this speed and this scale without funding.
1: I'll include a link to that blog post in the show notes. Are there any high-level key points you want to suggest to our listeners for those who want to support your work other than by backing the Save Point Kickstarter?
0: Sure. Ba- I mean, backer Kickstarters buy our books. You know, uh, but you can do a lot of things with with no money, right? Like so if your local library has or has a book that I wrote or that another historian you like wrote, like go check it out. Um like physically check it out at the library and and hopefully read it please read it um if if you want to read someone's book but if you go to your library and they don't have the book you can actually ask your library to get the book either through interlibrary loan which means bringing in from another library or request that they buy it it doesn't mean they'll buy it but it means they know to um that helps a lot you know tweet about people's projects tell other people about them that that's really meaningful but you know so so much of it's just getting word out it's really hard and i think for those of us that work in academic contexts like I have a a pretty demanding job and I work with a lot of students and I, I love it. But it also means, you know, some of the kind of like promotional stuff and, and media stuff that I should be doing or could be doing uh, doesn't always happen. So I'm really appreciative when people, you know, step in and signal boost and things like that. But, you know, there's so much to do. And I, I think if you're excited about, About history, if you're excited about preservation, like you can find ways to help and be involved that I think are open to a a wide variety of skills and interests and and resource levels.
1: Awesome! Thank you so much for sharing that advice. I will, as I mentioned, include links in the show notes. I'm looking forward to the second issue of Save Point, having already read the first one. Is it too early to ask when we can expect the third issue?
0: Uh, So. My goal for the third issue is that it would come out in, like, July, August, I think. I'm trying to do them about every six months. Um, I'm teaching a study abroad in Japan for May and most of June, so it kind of depends on how that goes. We're still planning, so I don't I don't know how hectic that'll feel. Last year, it was very hectic. Like, it was amazing, but also very hectic, but... We keep saying we're going to make this year more chill, but I don't think either of us is uh, good at that.
1: Yeah. Traveling is very exciting and it can be difficult to slow down and to get work done when traveling, even if that is the reason that you are traveling.
0: Yeah. Well, like, I got work done, right? But I got all the work done that I was there. That was like my on the clock work took up all my time. So I don't know. It's, it's It was great. I'm so glad I did it. Of course, I'm doing it again. But, um, you know, and, and I'm taking students like all over a country that I don't really speak the language in. And it's just very it's taxing
1: and hilarity ensued
0: oh gosh yeah no i love it the students are so delighted and and they like get lost and they're like oh no i got lost and i'm like yeah me too <laughs> they're like how do i <laughs> do this they're like i have no idea <laughs> like-
1: awesome well i've so much enjoyed chatting with you about save point and about your grant is there anything else that you wish we had chatted about today
0: uh, not not off the top of my head. I mean, thank you so much for your time. I, I do want to give a shout out to the Learning Games Initiative Research Archive. And I, I like to mention them because the Strong is amazing. I always will support the Strong. I also, I'm on the uh, board for the Learning Games Initiative Research Archive. And they have tons and tons of objects. And it's a very different kind of an ar- archive. It's a, they call it a gorilla archive sometimes, but it's it's preservation through use. So if you're interested in something and they have it, they'll mail it to you not to keep, but to use. And, and that's even true, like if you were teaching a uh, grade school or middle school and you want to bring in some artifacts to show students to like for a lesson, you can actually get things mailed to you from them. So I, I really recommend it because that's a really cool way to kind of um, engage with an, an interesting institution and also to have access to materials you wouldn't otherwise be able to, to get to.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carly Kosurik, associate professor, published author, game designer, researcher, interviewer. So many more things. I appreciate this opportunity to look at just some of the things that you've contributed to this community.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's been really, really nice to talk to you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.